Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Mary Fitzgerald, is an Irish journalist who, for the better part of five years, has covered Libya, including the fall of Gaddafi, Libya's fractured politics, and the rise of ISIS. Mary got her start in journalism covering the conflict in Northern Ireland, and she discusses how she applies what she learned studying that conflict to help her better understand Libya. We kick off with an extended discussion about the current political situation in Libya, which is complicated but sort of fascinating, and Mary does an excellent job of breaking it all down very clearly and concisely. And I should say that just a few days after we recorded this interview, the UN-backed unity government that was basically in exile in Tunisia actually made it back to Libya, but they came to Tripoli by boat because the militia that controls the Tripoli airport will not give them landing rights. So I've made this point before, but I do think that Libya is going to be one of the most important foreign policy crises facing the United States and Europe next year, particularly as the next president takes office. And this conversation, I think, offers a great way to understand the drivers of the conflict in Libya. As always, you can get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com. Send me an email. Let me know what kind of topics you'd like me to cover or who you want me to interview for these kind of long profile pieces. And now here is my conversation with journalist Mary Fitzgerald. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, to, to understand the, the crisis that Libya finds itself in right now, and uh, many people would describe uh, the situation as, as something akin to a civil war, uh, we have to go back to early 2014. And I remember um, sitting in a cafe in Tripoli, actually, in um, early January and uh, speaking with uh, some Libyans about um, we were basically discussing what 2014 might bring for Libya. We all knew it was going to be an important year. There were a number of elections in the pipeline, including elections uh, for the committee that would draw up Libya's first post-Gaddafi constitution. There were also certain dynamics related to the patchwork of, of militias in Libya that seemed to be coming to a head. Um, so everything pointed in the direction of 2014 being a crucial year um, in Libya's transition from dictatorship to democracy. And there was one uh, Libyan at the table who um, basically said, I can guarantee you uh, there will be a military coup um, in Libya this year. And uh, I, I laughed and I said, well, 
what military because we all knew that the army under Gaddafi had essentially been hollowed out. Gaddafi, having come to power in a military coup, was always fearful of um, the military acting against him. So he basically um, depleted it, made sure it was as weak as, as possible. After the uprising against him in 2011, the army further fragmented. So it wasn't or it didn't appear to be in a position to mount anything close to a coup in early 2014. A few weeks after that conversation, uh, Khalifa Hefter, a retired Gaddafi-era general um, who had joined uh, the opposition against Gaddafi in the 1980s, subsequently spent a couple of decades living in the US before he returned to Libya to join the uprising against Gaddafi in, in early 2011. Um, he appeared on television uh, calling for the suspension of the government and its replacement with a military council. Uh, he was met with, with ridicule. Uh, Libyans were joking about his Valentine's Day coup that wasn't. But what happened in the weeks later, um, it was that Haftar basically uh, left for eastern Libya, where he managed to cobble together an interesting alliance um, of disaffected army officers, uh, various militias in eastern Libya, some of them tribal-based, others um, linked with a movement seeking regional autonomy. And he basically brought them together and declared that they were launching a war on um, terror um, in Benghazi, specifically Libya's uh, second city and the largest city in, in eastern Libya. And this uh, initially got a lot of public support in Benghazi because the people of Benghazi had been plagued by a series of assassinations and bombings, which many blamed on radical elements in, in the city. But it also had um, a tremendous effect on the political scene in the country because Heftar uh, not only targeted extremists, but he targeted Islamists of all stripes. And indeed, in the first stages of his operation, he uh, made several interviews in which he said the Muslim Brotherhood, which had engaged with the political process, it had taken part in elections um, in the post-Gaddafi phase, he basically described them as uh, the main enemy and vowed to purge them from Libya. This created a certain reaction then within Libya's Islamist milieu, which had already been affected by events next door in Egypt, by the military coup that had um, dislodged uh, Mohamed Mursi in 2013. That had made uh, Libya's Islamists rather paranoid. Um, since 2013, they had seen plots and conspiracies amongst, uh, you know, around every corner. Um, so Hefter's operation basically had this effect of um, making elements in Western Libya specifically very, very much uh, paranoid and very much uh, digging in their heels. And, and even um, elements, though, that were engaging in the political process, people that weren't necessarily resorting to, to arms, right? Indeed. I mean, Hefter, forces aligned with Hefter in the early stages of his operation, they attacked um, the, the parliament in, in Tripoli. Many people considered what he did um, in May when he launched this operation to be his second coup, essentially. So it provoked quite a political reaction and quite a lot of fear among certain elements, um, particularly in, in Western Libya, in terms of what would uh, follow next. Libya had its sec second post-Gaddafi elections um, that June, um, elections in which um, Islamists and uh, allies of, of Islamists fared poorly. 
Um, and what happened was that triggered a battle for uh, control of Tripoli, the capital, between militias that had already been at odds with each other, had already been jostling for power and influence in, in the capital. What happened um, near the end of that summer was a militia alliance known as Libya Dawn essentially drove its rivals from Tripoli, took control of the city, and on the back of their victory, um, they uh, a self-declared uh, government emerged, which was backed by the predecessor of the parliament that was elected in June. The government of then Prime Minister Abdul El Thini uh, fled to eastern Libya. And, uh, well, that's sort of ironic, in, to, to Benghazi, to, to where Heftar was? Not to Benghazi, but to Beda, um, a smaller city further further east. And that basically created a situation in late uh, summer 2014 where you had two opposing camps, um, two parliaments, two governments, uh, and each of them backed by an array of armed factions. And the Beda Fight- one is probably the internationally recognized one, right? Well, the Beta government until recently was the internationally recognized government. But in recent uh, weeks, we have seen the culmination of a UN uh, mediated dialogue process, which began in late 2014, um, aiming to bring the um, rival political factions together and form a unity government and put an end to that divide that had really split so many of Libya's crucial uh, institutions and, and the pillars of, of state, if you like. And that was in that- December, right? Uh, when Martin Kobler, the UN representative, announced that this deal had been reached. And I believe the Security Council even like endorsed the deal. Indeed, indeed. So the the deal basically um, was uh, aiming to create a a, a government of of national accord or GNA, as people refer to it in in Libya. Um, There was a Security Council resolution. There were statements from the UN Security Council recently saying that it um, considers this government, this GNA, the um, sole legitimate government in Libya right now. So that has changed the rules of the game. Um, In many respects, the UN Security Council has called on member states to recognize only that GNA. The problem is that that uh, GNA, according to the political deal uh, from which it emerged, was supposed to be approved by the parliament in eastern Libya, that parliament that was elected um, in June 2014. That vote hasn't taken place, and there are all kinds of reasons as to as to why. There have been delaying tactics by certain elements in eastern Libya um, that are totally opposed to the GNA. They don't want a vote to take place. The UN decided very recently that it was essentially going to bypass that vote and uh, push for um, the GNA to actually set up in Tripoli, the capital. That hasn't happened up to now. Well, that seems almost um, sort of problematic, though, like trying to impose a political solution from on high, as opposed to securing the buy-in from the people who would actually be able to implement the deal. In, indeed. And, and this is the reason why whatever support um, that unity government or the idea of a unity government had in, in Libya, and it was, uh, I have to say, support that had dwindled um, from late last year, now we're starting to see that's that's that very kind of fragile base of support falling away even even more because people are basically saying um, this uh, government is is coming out of a situation where it, it, you're actually ignoring the elements of the agreement that brought it into being. Um, so it's crea- it will create, I think, a lot of legal headaches um, 
going forward. And also there is the the question of when this uh, unity government will be able to actually uh, sit in Tripoli. Right now, um, the first layer of this unity government, it's called the Presidency Council, is in Tunis. Um, They have attempted um, in recent days to uh, fly to Tripoli and establish themselves there. And they haven't been able to do so because the authorities in Tripoli have shut down airspace and engaged in other tactics to basically put this off. So, of course, if you have a situation where you have a government essentially in exile, it cannot in any way impose its authority in inside Libya. Um, so until it actually gets to Tripoli, there is no question of this uh, government being anything but um, a government on paper and a government in exile. I mean, this sounds like such a mess. Uh, how optimistic or hopeful are you that that the underlying um, disagreements or, or whatever the, uh, it is that is keeping this government so fragmented uh, might be uh, ameliorated in, in some way to uh, allow for the actual establishment of a generally stable government that that is, if not broadly representative of the people, at least is able to unite enough factions to call itself a government and, and claim some legitimacy with that designation. I have to say that there are very few uh, grounds for for optimism at the moment. Um, this is this unity government is is very very fragile. It's based on uh, questionable uh, legal grounds. It doesn't have the required support on the ground in Libya, uh, whether in Western Libya or Eastern Libya. And it also faces um, a threat from the militias in Tripoli who are essentially opposed to it and and very hostile and have in in, in some cases made very explicit threats um, against it if it attempts to set up shop in Tripoli. Also, I think that um, the fact uh, that Libya's uh, social fabric has been ruptured to such a degree over the last uh, two years will make this very, very difficult indeed. We're talking if we had two uh, main camps in summer 2014, uh, Libya Dawn uh, in Western Libya, and then um, uh, the Dignity Camp, which was the name of Hefter's operation in Eastern Libya. Really, we cannot say that those camps exist in a real sense anymore because both have both of those uh, sets of alliances have fragmented considerably since. And we're talking about fragmentation on an east-west level. We're talking about it on a community level. We're talking about it inside towns, cities, um, inside communities, in some cases within families. The polarization that has happened in Libya over the last two years has divided families. This poison has seeped into Libyan society. So when you have a political and a military landscape like that, that is so fractured and so atomized, the idea of unifying it in any way through a um, government, which is very, very fragile and is perceived by many Libyans on the ground as being imposed by the UN. Well, you know, it's it's not difficult to see that this is going to be very very difficult to to carry forward. And, and, so, right- yeah, I was saying, given that that fragmentation, I guess it's probably no surprise that um, the Islamic State has able been able to establish uh, a pretty powerful front in the middle of the country. 
Um, and it seems that the future you're describing is one in which sort of there's sort of increased atomization, as, as you said, is one in which we can probably expect the Islamic State to continue to, to thrive. Well, indeed, uh, the political insecurity vacuum we've seen because of the the the, the, the political power struggle um, over the last few years has um, created an opening for Islamic State uh, to emerge and expand um, in Libya. But it was always a question of not if, but when Islamic State would build a presence in Libya. However, I remember a number of conversations I had in early 2014 with um, uh, prominent figures in Libya's Islamist milieu who all raised concerns about what would happen when the the Libyans we all knew had gone to Syria to join with Islamic State there. What would happen when they started returning home? And I remember one senior figure in the Libyan Muslim Brotherhood telling me that he considered that this would be one of the biggest challenges Libya would face in the next uh, five to 10 years. So people were, were worried about it at that early stage. What we saw happen in late 2014 was the first Islamic State affiliate um, in Libya declared itself in the eastern town of, of Derna. Um, the Islamic State dynamic in Libya, though, it, 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 it it, it needs to be remembered that it is, um, while it has uh, many Libyans in its ranks, it is perceived by Libyans as predominantly a foreign-led uh, phenomenon. If you look at the leadership um, level in Islamic State in Libya, but also the rank and file, it contains a lot of uh, non-Libyans. The current um, leader, Abdul Qadir al-Najdi, um, his name suggests that he's of Saudi origin, and several of his commanders are Tunisians, Egyptians, etc. There, there's a very large Tunisian cohort in mm -hmm. Islamic State in Libya. So that has affected Libyan perceptions of Islamic State. Many Libyans will see it as something that is alien to Libyan society and something that needs to be rooted out. That is why many Libyans... Um, are openly calling for um, an inter some kind of intervention against Islamic State in Libya. They say that they would not have a problem um, with that. And we've seen that um, there have been airstrikes on Islamic State targets in Libya. A U.S. airstrike in late last year uh, killed the previous leader of Islamic State in, in Libya. A U.S. airstrike earlier this year killed uh, dozens of, of militants um, around the western town of Sabrata. There was very little public reaction, um, negative reaction to those airstrikes in Libya, primarily because Libyans see this as, as a foreign uh, predominantly a foreign phenomenon. I, I guess this question of, of international intervention in Libya, though, uh, sort of goes back to, to the initial discussion about, you know, who can claim to be the legitimate representative of the Libyan people to make the call for the international community to intervene on their behalf, right? Like you need a, a government to ask other governments to intervene in order for the intervention to be, you know, both legally and, and also just practically legitimate. Uh, and I guess this question of, of the legitimacy of, of who is the internationally recognized Libyan government is probably a big hang up in, in the question of whether or not there's any sort of will to intervene by the international community. Indeed. And one of the arguments that uh, the UN and, and Western diplomats were making when they were trying to get Libya's squabbling political factions to come together and, and sign up to this, uh, to this agreement was they were basically stressing the urgency when it came to Islamic State's growing presence uh, in the country. They thought that that threat would be enough to unify the, the political factions. That's not quite how it turned out. Um, the internationals were hoping that uh, 
this unity government would essentially sign off on some form of intervention against Islamic State in Libya. They're still hoping that. Um, but for all the reasons we outlined earlier, this government of, of national unity faces all kinds of challenges in terms of just establishing its legitimacy inside the country. So I got to say, I, I um, you know, do these interviews uh, a lot. And a lot of the reasons I, I reach out to people to... Um, to talk to is because I want to learn more about a situation. And I, I swear, in the last 15 minutes about talking about the politics of Libya, I have just learned more than I could have ever hoped about the, the current situation. And, you know, I, I for the listeners, I hope we didn't get too far in the weeds, but this was so, so helpful for me and will absolutely inform my writing and, and my thinking about uh, the current situation in Libya, which frankly, I think is going to be one of the more important and urgent uh, foreign policy considerations of, of the next president here in the United States. So this, I think, sets up that really, really nicely. And this was super, super helpful. Um, I would love to uh, pivot, uh, if if you would, uh, and talk a little bit more about you and, and how you got interested in Libya, where you came from. I can tell uh, by your accent that you are Irish. Um, where were you born? I was uh, born in Cork, which is the second uh, largest city in the Republic of Ireland. And I moved to Belfast in Northern Ireland uh, to study uh, my undergrad uh, at Queen's University in, in Belfast. And why Belfast? Belfast? Why, why Northern Ireland? Uh, and what year was that? Well, that was so that was in the late 90s. Okay. And uh, it was a really interesting time because, of course, it was the um, uh, time of, of negotiations that led to the 1998 Good Friday Peace Agreement that brought an end to the conflict that had plagued Northern Ireland for, for 30 years. The reasons I chose Belfast, I wanted to uh, study Northern Ireland history in Northern Ireland, coming from um, the Republic. It was quite interesting, actually, growing up in the Republic um, and, you know, the headlines, the news bulletins about the worst years of the conflict in Northern Ireland, the way certain events, certain bombings, certain uh, certain attacks uh, seared themselves into my childhood memory in a, in a very, very powerful way. And Do you have a particular memory of, of one such attack? Well, I remember the Enniskillen uh, bombings um, uh, because there was one very, very powerful radio broadcast where um, an elderly man was talking about his daughter um, who had died in, in the bombings. And it was a very, very emotional interview. And he spoke with incredible dignity and, and grace. And it was something that was really, really uh, very, very powerful for, indeed. And I think coming from the Republic, there Growing up, it was clear to me that there was um, the people in the Republic had a very complicated relationship with uh, Northern Ireland. Many people in the Republic see Northern Ireland as as a place apart. Many people in the Republic have never been uh, to Northern Ireland, nor do they have a particular desire to visit. And when you go there, um, what I was struck by um, immediately was that this this really did feel like a place apart. It didn't feel uh, totally Irish, uh, nor did it feel uh, totally British. It was a, an odd uh, mix of, of the two. So the sense of, of Irishness or Irish identity that I encountered in um, nationalist or Republican neighborhoods in, in Belfast uh, felt quite um, different to me. It, it, I, I found it in, in some respects a little um, difficult to identify with. So it was very interesting to 
to navigate um, a society like that as as a student, but then of course also as uh, as a rookie reporter because uh, my first uh, job in journalism was was in post uh, conflict uh, Belfast. So were you covering the the Good Friday agreements as a reporter, or were you still in uh, in, stu- uh, in school at that time? I was still at at school at that time. Um, I started um, as a journalist in uh, 2001. Um, But that was still, I mean, that was just three years after the Good Friday Agreement. um, And, uh, you know, Northern Ireland was still experiencing these these pangs, if you like, these post-peace agreement pangs. So the first stories I I covered as a a reporter were related to paramilitary feuds, um, sectarian killings, all of those ills that were still there and and still remain uh, today, I have to say. And it was interesting because um, my my name, my accent, etc., indicates to to people in Northern Ireland that I come from the the Republic and I come from, my name would give the impression that I come from an ostensibly Catholic background. Uh, So it was interesting navigating um, neighbourhoods in Belfast that were, you know, hardline loyalist neighbourhoods where people would have their guard up when they heard my accent or when they heard my name because they would see me immediately as somehow uh, hostile or or an enemy or, you know, somebody to be wary of. And it was very interesting to have those early lessons in, in difference and, and navigating difference like so that h- and navigating you get a divided them, society. How did you get them to, to lower their guard? Well, it was it was a process. Um, you know, it was a, a case of basically taking time with people and, and building um, connections and, and building contacts. And in the end, um, I managed to cover the loyalist paramilitary scene in Belfast uh, quite, quite well and developed a lot of contacts there. So I think it was just a case of spending time with people. So they realized that despite their initial perceptions of of who you might be. At the end of the day, you were simply a journalist uh, doing doing your job. So you didn't think you were a spy or anything when you were covering the Loyalist militia? I never had that allegation uh, thrown at me, um, I have to say. But just basically, they they were just suspicious. And, uh, and very often, people would say to me, after getting to know me over a period of months, they, they would say, well, we thought you would come into our communities with preconceived ideas of, of who we are and, and what we're about. And I think that that early experience of navigating and Belfast navigating Northern Ireland, uh, divided society like that, where, you know, sectarian attitudes were still very, very pronounced and interestingly more pronounced amongst the younger generation, uh, a generation that had really little memory of the worst years of, of the conflict. Um, they tended to be more sectarian in their attitudes than their parents' generation. So it was very interesting to to observe that up close and certainly I carried the lessons of that time with me when uh, covering conflict elsewhere, because it was a real lesson in terms of the need always to look for the shades of grey, that no conflict, uh, no war is ever black and white. So uh, our kids now who are, you know, maybe 18 years old, uh, so they're probably born after the Good Friday uh, Agreement, uh, are they um, a discernible sort of post-sectarian society or or are they um, still clinging to the sectarian identities that have sort of plagued uh, Belfast and in Northern Ireland in the past like is there any is, is this new generation sort of any discernible any different um, in their attitudes towards sectarian issues 
Well, while some progress certainly has been made, um, a lot of the social attitudes are still um, quite rigid, particularly in certain neighbourhoods. Remember, Belfast remains the only city in in Europe that is still divided by walls. You have the so-called peace walls that essentially divide Catholics and uh, Protestants living in certain parts of of the city. And I remember um, when I was reporting there, uh, talking to people on both sides of some of these walls, and they were not looking for the walls to be taken away. They were actually looking for the walls to be built higher. So that gives you an indication of how hard those attitudes still were. Take, for example, the issue of um, what people refer to as mixed marriages, marriages between Catholics and and Protestants in Northern Ireland. While that is not the taboo it was uh, a couple of decades ago, it's still um, something that uh, doesn't happen as as often as 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 you would think. So those kind of sectarian attitudes, whether it relates to how people socialize with each other, sport, for example, is still very much divided along sectarian lines. Um, There are very few avenues through which um, people can experience the other or where they can mix together still. Um, And that's 18 years after the, the Good Friday Agreement. So while Considerable progress has been made. There's still a long way to go. And of course, the very prickly question of reconciliation, of um, redress for the victims of the conflict, these are still issues that um, have to be resolved still. Uh, so where did you go to after you left or you left or you left Northern, left Northern Ireland? I left uh, Northern Ireland and, and moved to the Middle East. I lived in uh, Jordan for a couple of years. What compelled and- you there? Well, I, I traveled in the Middle East as, as a student, and I was always drawn uh, to the region as a, as a journalist, given that there were so many uh, stories there, uh, whether it was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whether it was post-invasion Iraq and the, the kind of tremors that were being felt through the region as, as a result. Um, so I spent a couple of years in Jordan um, reporting from several countries in the region, and then I moved back to Dublin. Uh, to take up the post of foreign affairs correspondent with the Irish Times, which was essentially a roving foreign correspondent um, uh, job, um, which saw me uh, report from over 40 countries across the Middle East, um, Africa and Asia predominantly. Did you get to like pick where you went? I mean, how did that work? Sometimes. Uh, uh, my editors were certainly open to uh, my suggestions or, or pleadings, as often was the case. Uh, but very often it was... Um, uh, responding to a breaking story. Um, so I remember um, the year that, uh, the December that um, Benazir Bhutto was assassinated, for example, um, and I had interviewed uh, Bhutto before her return to Pakistan that earlier that uh, that year. I went straight to to Pakistan to cover the story, um, despite the fact it was the Christmas holiday um, and uh, spending the years even in Pakistan wasn't quite part of my original plan. But it was very much, you know, that kind of responding to to breaking stories and, and taking a flight somewhere as as needs be. Um, so how do you like convince your your editors that a story in a place that's perhaps off the beaten track, like you mentioned 40 countries, I can't imagine all 40 of those countries were um, top tier concerns um, 
of the Irish government or or the UN or, or really any group that might be interested in foreign policy issues? Like, how do you convince them that a story is is worth telling? Well, the Irish Times has has long prided itself on its extensive uh, foreign coverage. Um, it has uh, correspondence posted in in several uh, parts of the world and has always devoted a lot of space uh, to to foreign news. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, certainly, our uh, readership um, surveys always suggested that people saw this as a really important part of of the paper and and the paper's heritage. Um, the paper has quite a few um, very uh, decorated, if you like, correspondence uh, throughout the, the, the decades. And also you have um, in Ireland a lot of people who are working for international organizations, working for international NGOs, uh, working for UN agencies, for example. So there is that very kind of internationalized uh, readership um, uh, for the Irish Times. So editors were always keen to cover not simply the, the breaking uh, stories and respond to events, but also seek out um, the stories in, in in parts of the world that were not necessarily covered uh, very well or, or extensively. Can you describe a time that you uh, yourself uh, went to a part of the world that was not covered extensively to try to you know uh, tell a, tell a story that was not necessarily front page news? Well, I think, um, I mean, I would return to Libya, but of course, Libya was was becoming uh, very much a, a big story at that mm -hmm. time. But, uh, you know, the, the Libya story, I remember in, in February 2011, um, I was part of the first wave of, of journalists into eastern Libya after the uh, first anti-regime protests broke out in, in Benghazi. And Libya was a, a country um, that was pretty much off limits to, to most journalists before that. I remember when I was based in the Middle East and, you know, wanting to go to Libya on a number of occasions, but getting a visa for Libya was extremely difficult, a journalist visa. And if you were lucky enough to get one, you were essentially a guest of, of the regime. You, you went where the regime wanted you to go and you spoke to whomever they allowed you to speak to. And, and did um, you ever do that? Did, did you ever... Um... Uh, sort of manage that kind of visa? No, I, I didn't actually. Um, so my first experience of Libya was was February 2011. Um, and I remember entering eastern Libya, um, going over the, the Egyptian border um, and basically being waved past by, because they, the, the rebels had taken over the, the border area, being waved past and, and welcomed with, with chocolate and, and juice and really not knowing what was, um, what was in front of us. They were just and totally thrilled to see like a white Western reporter come to the country to like witness the revolution. Exactly. Um, you know, there was, there was, I think all of us who came to Benghazi at that time, you know, there was that sense of uh, uh, people who, for the first time, felt that they could tell their stories of life under, under Gaddafi. And of course, you know, they um, wanted us to tell the story of, of what was happening um, in eastern Libya. Of course, um, they, they felt, and I think this was particularly the case um, in the run-up to um, the the UN Security Council resolution that led to the NATO-led intervention. They felt that having the journalists there to tell the story of what was happening on the ground was 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 crucial. Uh, there was a real fear in eastern Libya that Gaddafi's uh, was going to 
uh, snuff out their their nascent uprising. So I think that they felt having the journalists there was really, really important in terms of, you know, getting uh, news out about what exactly was happening inside the country. Were, were you in eastern Libya um, at that moment where there was that potential standoff where, where Gaddafi was saying he was going to crush Benghazi, um, used all sorts of dehumanizing language to suggest that there might be an incipient mass uh, atrocity event happening in Libya, which had sort of inspired that Security Council resolution that you just referenced. Were you in Libya during that moment? I was, and I remember the the fear on the ground in in Benghazi. I remember so you were in being, Benghazi. Yes, I was, and I remember um, being outside the the courthouse in Benghazi, which had become a headquarters for the. Um, the National Transitional Council, which was basically the body that the rebel forces had set up, the political body that they had set up. And, you know, the the, the mood was so tense in Benghazi at that time. There was a real fear um, as to what might in, unfold uh, next. And I remember seeing people break down, crying. Um, you know, there were memories in Benghazi of what Gaddafi had um done in a in a particularly infamous uh, incident back in the 1990s where um 1200 prisoners in the uh, notorious Abu Salim jail in, in Tripoli, which was basically the main uh, prison for, for political dissidents. 1,200 prisoners, um, many of them Islamists, were, were gunned down um, in a matter of hours um, by regime forces. And many of those uh, prisoners came from Benghazi, came from eastern Libya. So the memory of what Gaddafi did that year was was still very, very alive in, in eastern Libya. Um, and they really feared how Gaddafi may respond to the uprising that had gathered so much momentum in, in the East at that stage. And I mean, how frightened were, were you personally at this moment? I mean, you are in a city that uh, Gaddafi was was threatening to raise and you know, his forces were advancing on the city. Uh, he was threatening to commit all sorts of atrocities. Um, you know, as you mentioned just now, he has like a history of doing this sort of thing. Uh, like you you just sort of as, as, as a reporter there, like, like how... I mean, I have to imagine I would be very scared. Like, how how did you manage that that fear or that um, anxiety? Well, it was it was a, it was a difficult time, and I think it was difficult because it was so um, unpredictable. We really did not know what was going to to follow through. We had all um, heard Gaddafi's uh, infamous speech where he vowed to to cleanse Benghazi. Uh, referred to the people who had um, uh, risen up against him as as rats and uh, used all kinds of of blood curdling language. My editors actually um, decided that um, I that they wanted me out of Benghazi and asked me to pull out to um, the the border area, so Tobruk uh, town near the Egyptian border, and then the border area. Um, but I was back to Benghazi again after the first uh, French airstrikes that followed uh, the UN Security Resolution, Security Council Resolution. And I remember driving out um, the, the road where basically Gaddafi's uh, convoy, Gaddafi's forces convoy, was heading into Benghazi along that road. And that was the convoy that was struck by the, by the French um, airstrikes. Um, and I remember basically counting the vehicles and seeing how how large that convoy was and, uh, you know, pickup trucks mounted with Grad rockets and tanks, etc. And they had already started attacking the outskirts of, of the city. So for the people I spoke to 
in Benghazi at that time, they said that basically the size of this convoy led them um, to believe that there was no question that Gaddafi um, had ordered his forces to really punish uh, Benghazi if they had actually gotten into the city. Uh, and arriving and 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 reporting from uh, Libya during the NATO-led airstrikes, um, what what's is there a particular story uh, from that from that moment from that time that that sticks out to you uh, that you recall being sort of particularly resonant or having uh, some sort of um, uh, idea that the story would uh, portend something about Libya's future? Well, I think, you know, there was one, um, one particular incident um, in, uh, in Libya in summer 2011, which really um, shook the, the uprising and could have led it in all kinds of um, challenging directions. And that was the um, killing of Abdel Fattah Yunus, who was the um, chief of the rebel forces. He was um, a high level regime figure who had basically defected in the early uh, weeks of the uprising um, earlier that year. And I remember interviewing him actually in, in Benghazi in, in March that year. Um, and um, he was talking about um, his reasons for, for defecting, why he had chosen to defect at that time. Um, and what was interesting was that one of the reasons why it appears that he was um, killed um, and uh, an extremist um, militia that was part of the rebel forces has been blamed for uh, for killing him was that um, a suspicion that his uh, defection had not um, had not been sincere and that he was uh, there was there were allegations that he was still in contact um, with with regime figures. Um, he was adamant when I spoke to him that his um, defection was was genuine and and was very and spoke at length about his um, support and his reasons for supporting uh, the uprising. But his assassination at that particular time, it was a very, very delicate juncture. It was summer 2011. Um, the, the rebels were stalling in different parts of, of the country, and it threatened to basically divide um, the, the ranks of the rebel forces um, in a very, very dangerous way. They managed to um, uh, overcome that. Um, but I have to say that the the killing of Abdel Fattah Yunus is one of those stories from 2011, which still resonate um, today. In that he was a um, he was from a prominent uh, tribe in eastern Libya. That tribe, his family has never forgotten um, the killing, and it it still echoes today in terms of the dynamics in eastern Libya. The idea that he was um, killed by uh, fellow rebels, and um, particularly this idea that he was killed by extremists. So it's very much uh, a story that still has a resonance in Eastern Libya today. Um, so you've been reporting more or less, almost exclusively, right, from Libya since 2011. Uh, like, what keeps compelling you you back to the country? Why are you? Why of of all the countries that you could be covering, is Libya the story? that uh, resonates with you seemingly like so, so personally, I mean, there has to be a reason that you, you, you keep coming back. Well, I returned to Libya many times. I, you know, I spent uh, several months there in 2011 and returned several times uh, since and, and lived there throughout 2014. And, you know, the, the, the reason why I find Libya so interesting is as a journalist is um, because we 
had so little access to it um, during Gaddafi's time. Um, this was a country, remember, Gaddafi was in power for 42 years. Um, it was a country, even if you look at, say, um, academic research on Libya, there's a, a, a relative dearth um, of scholarship on Libya uh, during um, that, that focuses on the Gaddafi era. Um, and what exists is, is quite uh, thin in many respects, simply because people did not have um, the kind of access that would um, that would produce um, uh, detailed research on on Libya. So there was a sense that this was a country that was very much uh, cut off from the world in many respects. A country that we knew very little about. Uh, we knew uh, what uh, the regime wanted us to know about what was happening in Libya, but we knew very little about um, the lives of of Libyans under under the regime. Uh, it was a, a very isolated place in in many respects. So I found Libya fascinating in in the sense of discovering this this country and and you know trying to build um, a, a store of of knowledge and information about about Libya because I think you know in order to understand what's happening in Libya today we need to understand what happened in Libya over the, those forty two years as opposed how- to just like understanding what happened since two thousand eleven. Exactly, because I think really we cannot fully understand what happened since 2011 unless we go back and understand what happened uh, over the 42 years that Gaddafi was in power. Because the way Gaddafi shaped uh, Libyan society, the way he manipulated different elements of, of Libyan society in order to to bolster his, his position, um, the way he shaped it through his let's face it, rather idiosyncratic uh, experiment in, in governance. All of that is key to understanding where Libya is at today. Is there Whether something that, that you could point to, um, like a trend or something that Gaddafi did, uh, or just like individual experiences from the Gaddafi era that you could point to as having like a particularly resonant impact on politics today? Well, one thing I would say is that what I'm always struck by uh, with Libya is the there's an intimacy to Libya. It's a country of just six million people, very tightly knit. Um, you know, we're talking about two degrees or three degrees of separation between people. Yet, um, so you would imagine that Libyans uh, know one another, and they do, but in many respects, they don't know each other. Um, because under Gaddafi, Gaddafi fed this kind of distrust within Libyan society. So Libyans often talk about how when Gaddafi was in power, you had to be really careful about who you uh, you trusted. Um, so you very often um, may not trust or may not have trusted um, uh, people within your extended family. Uh, Gaddafi injected that kind of poison of suspicion and distrust within Libyan society to that extent uh, that in in some cases brothers suspected brothers, and that kind of corrosive distrust um, that Gaddafi in, encouraged, you still see it today in in Libya, and it it, it you see the effect of it in in Libyan politics. Um, because if 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 we talk about um, Libya's nascent uh, democratic um, uh, experiment, if you like, since 2011, it's nascent politics. Um, we can see that it has been marked by a number of different dynamics. Number one, what we might call the politics of, of exclusion. So from a very early stage, you had different elements and different factions in, in Libya who basically felt that others were out to exclude them. 
uh, from public life, from the political uh, process. So they did as much as they could to exclude those elements before they had an opportunity to exclude them. And these, the people who who basically operated on that basis, they were, um, some of them were Islamists, some of them were uh, people who were former regime who wanted to um, basically stir things up a little bit. Others were people who were very anti-Islamist and wanted to make sure that the Islamists were not part of of, uh, the public sphere. So all all of that kind of fed this um, this fear um, of being excluded. And in, in 2013, um, a very controversial law was passed. It's known as the isolation law um, uh, by Libyans. And it was a very sweeping lustration law that basically barred um, people who had uh, had senior roles in the Gaddafi administration from holding public office in, in Libya. It was a very uh, sweeping law that basically caused a lot of resentment in Libya and really kind of injected a bitterness into the political scene. Um, And that law was pushed through by a coalition of of, um, different factions and groups that, again, were driven by these fears of being excluded themselves um, in, in the new order. We can also talk um, about the victors, the sense of victors justice that has been um, uh, driven in in post-Gaddafi Libya. This idea that um, reconciliation was something that people really was not were not um, interested in. So if you look at the the case of of Sirte, Gaddafi's hometown, I remember uh, trips I made to Sirte after 2011. It was essentially a a town that was left to rot. Um, the the residents of Sirte, um, who were predominantly supportive of the Gaddafi regime, um, Sirte was essentially the regime's last stand, if you like. They were basically made to feel like the losers in, in the new order, and they were essentially abandoned. So that sense of, of victor's justice, that the people who had you know, won, if you like, in, in the uprising in 2011, were going to do what they uh, wanted to do, and they had no interest in in actually recon- reconciliation and, and, and healing um, the and, and including elements that were not necessarily sympathetic to the and, uprising. And certain now, of course, is, is the, the base of, of the Islamic State in Libya. Well, exactly. So uh, CERT is where Islamic State has, has basically established its, its stronghold. And, uh, you know, that's no coincidence. In, in some respects now, the reasons why Islamic State has managed to build that stronghold in CERT are, are quite complicated. But one of the reasons is that uh, Islamic State was able to feed on local grievances there, feed on a population that had uh, very much felt that it was abandoned in the new order. So some of those who have joined the locals that have joined Islamic State and CERT, for them, Islamic State is, is uh, in, in, in some respects, a means of, of empowerment um, and an empowerment they haven't felt since 2011 because they were made to feel like they had uh, lost, essentially. What is next for you? I, I know you're, you're working on a forthcoming book. What can we ex- when can we expect that? And, and what uh, are you trying to do with this book? Well, the, the book I'm working on at the moment is basically um, looking at the historical and social context that produced um, Libya's uh, militant currents since the late 1980s. So it's looking at what we might call the, the three generations of 
um, of militants. Um, the, those who went uh, to Afghanistan uh, to fight against the Soviets in, in the late 1980s, what happened to them since? And then the generation uh, that followed that went to Iraq um, after 2003. And then, of course, the generation that has gone to um, Syria um, and, and Iraq since uh, 2012, particularly those who have joined Islamic State. And it's, it's examining the, the social uh, context in some parts of Libya that have produced these kind of currents. Because what I was struck by in 2011 was the fact that there are certain um, parts of Libya, certain communities where because uh, the, the jihadis that emerged in, in, the, in the 1990s in particular, the veterans of Afghanistan, um, they were essentially forming groups that um, were, were fighting the Gaddafi regime. They managed to um, basically establish a certain level of support within uh, certain communities in Libya, a certain level of acceptance because they were fighting the regime. So you could speak of um, what, what eventually um, became a kind of a jihadi subculture in certain parts of Libya, certain communities in Libya, where... It was um, for young men uh, growing up in these communities, in certain cities and towns, uh, certain parts of Benghazi, for example, certain parts of, of the eastern town of, of Derna, certain parts of Ajdabia. Um, jihadist uh, groups, jihadist ideology was something that they grew up with and that they were drawn to um, because in, in many cases they saw these veterans of the battle against Gaddafi, they saw them as as local heroes. So and have you been able to, to actually like speak with uh, Afghan jihadi veterans? Yes, yeah, several of them. I mean, what's interesting about the Libyan experience is that um, key figures in the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which was the main um, militant group that emerged from that cohort of Libyans that went to Afghanistan in the 1980s, they basically um, evolved into uh, politicians post-2011. So a number of them set up different political parties, ran for election themselves unsuccessfully, um, but they engaged in the political process, having renounced um, uh, violence before uh, the uprising during a, a rehabilitation program that the regime implemented. But they took up arms again during the uprising, uh, played a role um, in the uprising, and then later engaged in the political process by forming, forming political parties and taking part in the election. So that's been a very, very interesting evolution for some of those figures of that generation, some, not all. What's been also They're kind of like about 50 years old now and probably like mellowed out a bit in their ideology. To, yes, you could say that. I mean, I think in, in some cases, though, the events of the last uh, two years in, in Libya have again, you know, um, had a, a certain effect in terms of the way uh, people are, have um, have reacted and, and the roles that they've played over the last two years. But what's interesting is the the generational divide, the generational conflict between that older generation of former jihadists and now um, the younger uh, generation that are coming up, the kids um, that are joining Islamic State, for example, because they see that older generation as having essentially sold out um, by engaging in politics, by taking part in the in the democratic process. So there's an interesting generational conflict there. And if you look at the uh, the younger Libyans who've joined with Islamic State and other similar groups, they have actually targeted some of that older generation in their propaganda, etc. Sometimes uh, targeted through actual 
uh, physical attacks. So it's been very interesting to watch that uh, that generational and conflict. How do you uh, like personally go about like interviewing like a, a, a you know a died in the wool member of the Islamic State, knowing of course that they you know have, have at least in Syria are are attacking journalists or killing journalists? Um, ha- like how do you navigate that? I, I assume like you've probably had to interview them in, in order to to go about the research for this book. I haven't interviewed um, Islamic State members in person. What I have done is interviewed people who subsequently became members of of Islamic State. And in early 2014, um, I spent a lot of time in Benghazi um, interviewing members of Ansar al-Sharia, which was a a designated uh, organization um, more aligned with al-Qaeda, although subsequently several of its members joined with Islamic State. And what I found interesting about the interviews I did in Benghazi at that time, interviewing younger members in particular of Ansar al-Sharia, but also their families and friends, trying to understand Ansar al-Sharia as a a social phenomenon. So why so many young men in Benghazi and other parts of Libya at that particular time were drawn to to Ansar al-Sharia. And, you know, Ansar al-Sharia's strategy was um, quite an interesting one in that um, it was at core an armed group of a couple of hundred men at that particular time. But they also um, uh, engaged in, in, uh, they were a social movement as, as, as such. So they engaged in uh, charitable activities, preaching, etc., which allow them to build a much larger support base um, in in Benghazi, and that's what made it more difficult to to tackle them, um, if you like, because you know the the line between the armed group and that wider social movement was, for the most part, very very blurred. So the question of what to do about Ansar al Sharia was was one that um, really caused a lot of debate in 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 Benghazi in those early months of 2014, before, of course, Khalifa Haftar launched his operation and and that debate over how to tackle Ansar al-Sharia, whether through force or through dialogue, um, was was basically um, rendered moot by his uh, by his operation. Well, well, back to Heftar seems like a good way to to conclude this. Mary, I, I, I think I could speak to you for hours. I've learned so, so much from this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Mary. That was a long episode, but so, so, so helpful in helping me and I hope you understand what, again, I think is going to be one of the bigger foreign policy issues of the next couple of years. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.